Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 20, Victory Point Games. Welcome back. It's been about three weeks since the last show, my usual break, it seems. Longer than I'd like, but I think you'll you'll be happy with this episode. It should be a big one. This week I'm going to be talking about all about Victory Point Games. We're going to have three segments. First, I'm going to, well, maybe four. First, I'm going to have a, a quick overview about Victory Point Games in general. Then I think I'm going to have a brief discussion on the State of Siege engine that uh, they've come up with. They've got about a dozen or so solitaire games there. After that, an interview with Tom Decker, who's designed a number of games for Victory Point Games, including the uh, Disaster in the Himalayas series. And finally, I'm going to give you a review of Nemo's War by Chris Taylor. So there's going to be a lot going on here. I think this episode is going to be well over an hour since the interview itself, I think, is about 45 minutes. Anyway, before we jump into that, let's go ahead and uh, talk about some solitaire news. First off, uh, on Kickstarter, there are two solitaire-friendly projects that I know about. Well, one that I know about and one that I think is solitaire-friendly. The The first one is the Traveler 5 RPG game. It's a, This is the classic Traveler game updated to the 5th edition. I'm, it doesn't say it anywhere specifically. I think it supports solitaire play in the way the old Traveler game did. Because you can make your own galaxies and go explore them and trade with them, that sort of thing. Of course, if you have the Mythic RPG system, you could play it solo. Or if you have your story cubes, you could use the rules up on uh, Solo Nexus website. So I should say that the uh, Traveler 5 book that you're getting is going to be a monster 500-page uh, guide that has everything you ever need to know to play in there, I think. So if they get enough support, they'll actually even make a player's guide. Unfortunately, to get the book, it's going to cost $100, well beyond my budget this month. Um, there is a $50 option where you could order this, the book on CD. The second Kickstarter item is Rise of the Zombie Zombies by Danvers and Games. This is a 1-6 to six player game, zombie survival game. It's designed to scale so that the more players you have, the harder the challenge is. So in theory, it should work pretty well for one person. Both of these games started in the last couple weeks, so they still have a few weeks left. The Traveler 5 has already hit its funding goal of 25000 or so, and is over 120000 I think, at this point. Rise of the Zombies has a $2,000 go, I think it is, and is currently about eleven or 1200 so it's not quite there yet. Another newly announced game is uh, by GMT. It's on their P500 list. It's called Cactus Air Force. It's a game about air combat in Guadalcanal, I think, during World War II, I guess. I'm not really sure. It is specifically a solitaire game. Next up, uh, this is interesting. Equilibrion was... Uh, we've been waiting and waiting for it to be released by Z-Man. It appeared in Canada. And what well, appeared here about, there about a month ago it still hadn't shown up in the U.S. and waiting and waiting. And suddenly Z-Man announced that They've pulled all the copies of the game and are renaming it to Ubrion. This is because they receive a cease and desist letter from somebody telling them that their the name is too similar to their trademark name. They haven't said what game it is. It might be Equilibrio. It might be Equilibrium. 
Either way, they're renaming it, and they're saying the newer, the new renamed game should be available in September. But you know, with their track record, with their luck with this game, we'll see. There might still be copies available in Canada, so if you really, really want one, you go check Canadian websites, and you might get lucky. And finally, I have two pieces of Victory Point game news. First is the game Swing State 2012 has been released and is now available. It is a it is a one-player game about the campaign for presidential election. And it uses the new updated uh, Victory Point game's quality of components, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. And the second item is Victory Point Games has announced that they're about to release Leve and Moss for the iPhone and Android platforms. There's going to be a digital version of that game. I'm looking forward to that. That is actually the my favorite States of Siege game that I've played so far. Okay, so that's it for news. Six little items. Okay, so Victory Point Games is a small games publisher based out of California. It was originally started by Alan Emmerich, and uh, he was, at the time, I think he might still be teaching, at the time he was teaching a game design class with the Art Institute. That's an art school that's at least in California. I know it has branches throughout the state. They they teach courses in a computer design and classic art also. Anyway, I think Alan was teaching a board game design class, and he said to start a business to help the students have more hands-on experience and learn that way. And so Victory Point's game was started. Most, if not all, the original games were designed by students, but at least after a little while... Pretty quickly, I think, they started accepting outside games and started publishing them. And now at this point, they actually publish quite a few solitaire games or solitaire-friendly games. I don't know what percentage, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a, a good third of their games are solitaire-friendly. They've also now started making video games. As I mentioned in the news section, they're going to release a, one of their States of Siege games for the for portable platforms. So there you go. That's, that's a very brief, very quick introduction into the company. The games they've been publishing and printing have generally been a lower quality than your typical Euro game or even a GMT-style war game. They come in a poly bags. The rules are generally four pages. There's counters, which were not very good quality and hard to punch and that sort of thing. And the first game I got, uh, you know, I was quite surprised by it and honestly a little bit disappointed in it. I think that's a pretty normal reaction for most people. However, once you start playing the games, they're usually you find the quality doesn't really matter once you actually play the game. And it's still a very satisfying experience. And sometimes shuffling the cards and that sort of thing can be hard because the paper has been very thin cardstock and not at all slick or anything. So they kind of stick together and stick to your fingers a little bit. Makes them hard to deal with. Fortunately, I believe that is a thing of the past. They just recently released another game, another solitaire game, called In Magnificent Style. And true to the title of the game, the, the components have been upgraded in much nicer quality and style. The Everything looks nicer. The graphic design is much more professional looking than in the past. The counters are much thicker, and they're now laser cut. There's actually a video you could see where you could see the laser cutting machine working. They come out great. nice thing about laser cutting is you could basically program the machine to do any pattern. So I'm sure pretty soon they're going to start coming out with other non-traditional counters that are going to be really really fun to play with. The card quality is also going to be improved, I think. 
uh, I I haven't seen the, the, any of the new games yet, so I really can't say what it's like, but it all sounds very promising. I contact Victory Point Games and ask them about the their old games. Are these going to get upgraded at all? Are you going to be able to get all the, all the old classic Victory Point games with the newer quality components? Uh, the reply is they do plan to upgrade everything. However, it takes time because they got to redo the layouts and arts for everything. So while they're working on this, they're still going to be working on new games. I think uh, updating all the old games to their new gold standard is going to take a little while. I, I think uh, what I was told is it's probably about a year of work. So I'm not sure how fast it actually happens. The games are probably going to be done in the order of popularity. So the more obviously the more popular games are going to be upgraded first. I also asked if there's any plan to to sell, like say, upgrade packs, if in case you just wanted the counters or cards for some of your old games and you don't want to upgrade your board. There weren't any specific plans for that, but you know, it's not something that they're against doing necessarily. Okay, so that's it for Victory Point Games and the state of their games. State of Siege, oh yeah. State of Siege. So the States of Siege series is, is a set of games, all solitaire games, in which you're playing a, a static force at the center of the map and are being attacked by five, on, and you're being attacked on five different fronts. The way it generally works, each front is represented by a line of connected uh, spaces. I guess it's point-to-point -point movement, and each front is generally about five or six spaces the enemy units start at the farthest most space from your your center and the way they move tends to vary from game to game but generally each turn one or more of these armies are going to move in one or two spaces towards you and on your turn you can fight back by rolling the dice and try and push them back at any point if the armies reach your center space you're going to lose the game that generally is right there the whole States of Siege series in a nutshell. However, I said there's 11 different games, and there wouldn't be that many if they're all just exactly the same. So there's a lot of variety in between that little structure there. There's, I think that description probably describes the first game the best. However, I haven't played the first game, so I can't say for sure. It is Israeli Independence. I've I heard an interview with Alan Emmerich on a point-to-point -point podcast a few years ago, and then they talked about this game. From what I recall, each you have a, like I said, you have five fronts. Each turning a draw card can tell you which, which uh, armies to advance. Basically, it's going to say on, you know, fronts number one and three advance the army. They're going to go one space forward. It's also going to tell you some event that may happen, and events could uh, affect the layout of the board and that sort of thing maybe. And then it's going to give you a number of action points that you have to spend. And the action points are generally going to be spent on fighting the fronts. So I think that right there is the, the most basic one of the games. This this system allows for a lot of variety, though, like I said, um, and, and a lot of opportunity to add complexity. For example, American Independence, you actually have leaders that you play, both enemy leaders and friendly leaders. And instead of drawing a card to see which armies advance, the the armies that currently have leaders are the ones that get to advance. And you get to fight back with your leaders. So if for whatever reason you have fewer leaders than the uh, the opponent, the, the AI, you're going to have fewer actions than he is in a sense. However, the same general idea works. You attack and either and try and push the armies back. 
the system, there's also a lot of different themes in the game. They're all generally war games. I don't think that's necessarily strictly true. They're mostly historical, but I think there's one or two fancy fantasy settings. They all use cards. Most of them use them for events and to determine how many actions, but not all. Again, American Independence is a game in which you draw the card and some you're going to have in your hand to use as units. Some you're going to play on the board as units or leaders that you have either for your side or for the enemy. And then the number of actions in that game is determined by your leader's ratings. Most other, all the other ones I've played, the number of actions is determined by the card you draw. It'll have an event, and then the number of action points you have to spend that turn. The games vary in price between about fifteen to forty dollars. Pretty much all of them are twenty-five. I think the only one at fifteen is the first one, Israeli Independence, and at the only one at the forty-dollar range is a Civil War game, which whose name escapes me right now. The Lost Cause. There's also expansions for a few of the games. The expansions I think are about seven or eight dollars each. And they generally add more cards and maybe more counters. The cards also all tend to have flavor text in it. So as you're playing the game, this is especially true for the historic ones, like say Israeli independence. Each of the cards you draw is going to tell you it's going to have the event and it's going to have a description of something that happened. And if you if you were to play the cards in order, it's going to tend to simulate the historical event and you're going to get a sense of uh, what was going on. Normally when you play, you shuffle the cards. There's different levels of complexity. As I said, the easiest is uh, probably, as I said, the easiest is probably Israeli independence. Um, I've also played the one about the Alamo, and that one, well, I actually, not also, but I've played the one about the Alamo, and that's also pretty easy. And then there's more complicated ones like uh, the American independence, which you have different units and they have strengths, and there's different actions you could take, and you could place forts on the board that uh, that can slow down the uh, the enemies from moving towards you and you have units that you could play or hold on to and that sort of thing the one I've liked the most so far that I've played I've played I think five out of the eleven so far four or five of them the one I've liked the most is Live and Mass which Live and Mass has three tracks on the board one for monarchy one for despotism and one for the republic you're playing I guess you're playing the republic and if, if you want the Republic to be strongest, and when they're strongest, you tend to do better uh, against the enemies that are attacking you. And so a lot of the events move these back and forth, and you have to decide as you're playing, when you're using your action points, do you want to spend your action points to try and adjust the strength of the monarchy or the Republic, or do you want to spend your action points to push back the armies? So uh, the t- choices end up being pretty tough and... The times I've played it, sometimes it, there's obvious choices what you know what you want to go to do, but a lot of the time it's just you know you're just struggling. What what should you do? There's one game called Ottoman Sunsets, which is about World War One, the the war in the specifically. That one actually has it has the five tracks, but then there's also a a separate s- little sub map on the board, which you need to place forts because at some point you're gonna draw an event that the British are gonna try and attack. The British are going to try and attack Constantinople with ships, and what happens there is you just roll the die at each fort that you have on the map and see if you hit the British. you got to hit them four times to knock them out. If you do that, you keep going. If not, you lose the game instantly. So that's a whole other thing that you're trying to decide, do I want to spend my action points to fight the units that are already moving towards me, or do I want to spend my action points and build up 
to to be able to defeat these British and how many forts do I have to build? You know, is four or five going to be enough or and I'm going to just chance and hope that I don't roll too many misses or do I want to really defend it really well? And that game has a lot of other things where you could spend action points instead of fighting directly. And they tend to generally affect the, the game and maybe making you strong when you fight the armies or helping against other events that are going to come up. So the tension in that game is really good. I would admit I did not enjoy that uh, British attack through the narrows at all. I found it frustrating that I could just lose the game instantly in that one card. Other than that one point of the game, I really, really liked it and found the rest of it really fun. The um, the good thing is that that event gen- tended to come in pretty quickly, and if I did lose because of it, it was in the first 10 or 15 minutes of play, and it's really easy to restart at that point. So as I said, there's 11 games, and they're mostly historical. There's one about the Alamo called A Blood Red Banner. The There's a fantasy one called Dawn of the Zeds, which are fighting zombies. There's the Empires in America, which in which you're playing the... I guess the the French Americans trying to defend yourself from the British. This is during the French and Indian Wars. There is Israeli independence, which I already mentioned, which talks about well the independence uh, of Israel. I guess. Okay, my lack of history knowledge is showing through here. I'm sorry. Next is Keep Up the Fire, which I think is one of the few games that actually represented a, a real siege. You know, a lot of these like the. Uh, Living, living in Mass is talking more about a revolution than a siege, but it plays it in a siege style, I guess, using these rules. But Keep Up the Fire was about a siege of Peking. That one is neat because you actually have troops that you place on the board and you could move them around if you need to. And each, or not troops, but different armies, and each army has different benefits. So you want to decide on which front you want to place each of the armies. And you could move them back and forth if you need to with, within some restrictions. And some of them are better for up close combat and some are better for for fighting units that are still farther off there is legions of darkness a fantasy theme so we've now got two two of the games that are not based on historical events then there's live in mass which is about the wars of the french revolution and that game i think takes over takes place over a number of years that one was also published in french actually and as i said it's going to be released as a is a game for iPhone, iPad, and Android devices. There is Malta Besieged, which is about uh, World War II. There's Ottoman Sunset about World War One that I already mentioned. There's Soviet Dawn about the Russian Civil Wars. The Law's Cause, which I briefly mentioned about the Civil War. We Must Tell the Emperor about the World War II in the Pacific. This is a, a really popular game. It has really good ratings on BGG. And I have, unfortunately haven't tried it yet. And finally, there's Zulus on the ramparts about the Battle of Rourke's Drift. I really like this system. It, it's really versatile. Bec- like As you've seen, you can have a lot of different themes. And they all so far seem to work pretty well. There, There's different levels of complexity. So depending on what kind of game you're in the mood for, you could get a more complex or, or a simpler one. And all the games definitely have a lot of tension. It, it, you know, it gets... It gets pretty fun when you're playing, and you, you've really got to figure out where you're going to spend your one action point you've got left, and you've got two armies that are getting close. In a way, it's all luck-based, because you don't really know which might be the one that moves next turn, or if you're even going to be able to succeed in your roar or not. But it, it still tends, and it still ends up being really fun. All all these games, and really all victory point games, I think, at least ones that use dice, 
bring dice with them, but because, as I mentioned before, the games come in a Ziploc bag, they bring a little tiny die that's, gosh, I don't know, like three or four millimeters or something like that. Really, really tiny die. Okay, so that's it for the States of Siege. If you haven't tried the games, I, I recommend you try one or two out. Uh, I, I don't think you'll be at all disappointed. So now I'm going to go ahead and jump into the interview with Tom Decker. Okay, I must say, I really enjoyed talking to Tom, and I found the, the whole discussion really interesting. Hi, this is Tom. Hi, Tom. This is Albert. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Doing good. good. Thanks, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Sure. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump straight into this, because honestly, I never know how to start these interview things. Um, okay, whatever you're comfortable with, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So for anybody not familiar, uh, Tom Decker is uh, has designed a number of games with Victory Point Games, and... Not all of them, but quite a few of them support solitaire play, and I think a few are designed for solitaire gaming. That's right. Yep. Okay. Um, so, how long have you been playing games? I've been playing games all my life, really. I mean, it's uh, you know, way back. I I always think you know probably the first time that I, I as far as getting into the meteor games, it was I, I discovered some games at the, a local mall. Um, that had uh, the bookshelf games, Avalon Hill, and uh, I got addicted and uh, was playing really ever since then. Okay, are you play, Do you play mostly like war games and that sort of thing? Well, that's certainly where I started, and that's what most of the games were back then. But that's not where it kind of evolved to. I mean, that's um, like I said, I you know. Back in those days, it was hard to find people to play with, which is one of the reasons I know we're getting to talking about solitaire games. Um, uh, so it was difficult to find somebody. There weren't very, there were really no games that were very suitable for solitaire play back then. Um, but uh, no, I like a lot of euros now. I mean, once I discovered the faster playing uh, concepts of euros, that's kind of where I've moved on to. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can understand. I find it hard to to make time to play. Longer games, so anything that plays fast is is a good thing, really. Yeah, I like. I mean, I love the fact I didn't. You know, that whole revolution kind of was going on in the mid '90s, and I didn't even know it was happening. And then somebody showed me Settlers of Catan. I think that was the entry point for a lot of people, and and uh, I was, you know, just completely awed by that. And I said, oh, I, I ran out and got it the next day, and uh, you know, and then and then it kind of took a while for me to find the rest of them. Uh, they, they weren't, you know, there weren't a lot of game stores right away, and and then uh, Wizards of the Coast started a, a couple game stores in the area, and I uh, discovered a lot there. And then Board Game Geek has been wonderful for really finding all these games. Okay, yeah. So, so um, when did you start designing games? Um, again, you know, I, I think I've been designing games always. <laughs> I was one of those kids that. You know, I never liked toys. You know, I would get a toy for for a present or something, and 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 it was never to me. You know, well, I was always, what am I going to do with this? You know, I you know, I can't. You know, it was always, what game can I make out of this? So I've really been making. You know, in my head, I've been making games. You know, for my whole life. But again, you, you know, I mean, I my games would be roll and move. You know, simple games when I was a kid, and then you know, I tried to make better, more complex games. But I really started again, you know, when I kind of discovered these, uh, all, all these Euro games that were coming out and, um, 
you know, it was around 2004 that I started really putting a lot of effort into newer game designs, and and Disaster on Everest was the one I started up working on first, and and um, uh, and it, you know, and now I've got a couple published games, but that before that, any game that I did before that uh, really would need a lot of work to to see published status. That, that's interesting. You know, my daughter, we were playing a Snitch Revenge a few weeks ago, an old Tom Wham game. And uh, she went and then she started making her own version of that. So she's starting to try and design games too, which is really neat to watch her do. That's great. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's great to watch. The, wow. <laughs> my kids yeah. don't design. They'll play, I make my kids play with me, but I don't. <laughs> I, they, they haven't really taken up the design bug very much yet. Yeah, I'll walk into the room and she and her brother are trying to play something. You know, she's making up the rules as she goes along. It's just, it's just awful cute. A lot of fun. <laughs> you know, I think I think that there's something to you know. I think a lot of those games, and especially the really good ones. I know the the new Lego games do this, where they let you, you know, come up with your own rules. They encourage you to come up with your own rules. And I think I think a lot of us did that when we were young with games like Monopoly. I mean, the free parking space, which isn't even a real rule, but everybody played with, and 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 stuff like that. I mean, you did. You know, some of the games were just a little more complicated than we were ready for, and so you would start playing them with you know, your own rules. And and then, I mean, for me, you know, it was a natural, you know, when I got into the, the heavier games, it was like, well, this game's good, but I would do it this way, you know, and, and I think that's a natural instinct for a lot of people too. Yeah, I think you're right. So so let me ask you about the, the games you've designed. I think I'm doing this chronological, well, like you already said, you designed uh, Everest first. But, but, um, but I, I published Circus Train first, if you want to start yeah. there. I, yeah, I'll start wherever you want. But so Okay, so yeah, let's, let's go with the Circus Train first since it got published first. It's designed. Well, I don't, I don't know a lot about the game. I know it's a uh, you own a circus train, and it's I think in the twenties or so, nineteen right. twenties. Um, and I know it's based on a book, Water for Elephants, and I think that's about as much as I know right there. Well, you know, it's um, it it a lot like a lot of the games that I started designing back in that time, uh, you know, eight or nine years ago. Um, you know, I had no idea of of how to publish a game. I had no ways of publishing a game, so I didn't I didn't design for publishing. I just designed for what seemed like fun, and uh, I didn't necessarily have the resources to even make uh, really nice prototypes. I mean, you know, I'll design a lot of things on the backs of old business cards, and and you know, and and try to do what I can with uh, whatever paint program I can use or whatever. But um, so uh so that game so circus train you know when i first put it together it was a much bigger game same with disaster on everest both of them and they were designed for more players and i didn't they weren't initially neither one of them uh was initially a solitaire game that actually came with uh, uh working with victory point games um working within their um component constraints that they had um, when I first met with them and seeing that my games were way out of control in terms of size and uh, since they uh, you know, print on demand for everything they do, it would have just been crazy to do the scope of what those, ori- those games were originally. And it really helped me. You know, it helped me. Sometimes, sometimes having to shrink down a game like that really makes you understand what's important in your game and, and uh, narrows it down to you know, just really the best elements. So um, that's kind of what it was originally designed for, and then it was, you know, in 2009 that I started working with Victory Point Games, and we started shrinking it down and um, and making it into the one and two player game that that shipped, and then with the expansion, it went up to three to five players. Okay, that's interesting. I had no idea it was uh, designed for more players. 
do, do they uh, ask for a lot of changes when they look at a game? I guess that depends on the game. What's that process like? You know, as far as victory point games, mm-hmm. yeah, they're very, uh, they're actually really, really easy to work with. Um, they're great. I mean, if anybody, if you or anybody has a design, I mean, they will, they will look over your design. Um, they are, they are eager and great. I mean, they, they want to publish games. Uh, they want their, their goal at least at one point was to put out a new game every two weeks. I'm not sure if it still is, but. Um, they are very eager to have product, and they're and and so no, they they don't. I don't think they demand a lot of changes. Um, but again, as you say, it depends on the product and what what uh, what you're doing. I mean, I suppose if it's something similar to what they already have or something like that. But uh, they give they give you a lot of freedom. I mean, and I don't go in there with just a page or two of of notes or something. I mean, I will go into them with a full prototype that I've played and played and played and I feel pretty good. I mean, maybe that's just the way I like to approach it, but I don't want to go in there with a game that I haven't, that I don't feel really good about, you know. Uh, I, I want to feel good about it before I even approach them. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, this game, when the, the base game is for one or two players. How how different is the one-player game from the two-player game? It's a lot different, and, and, it, and it's different in a lot of good ways. I mean, they're for for one, I mean, the main difference in the one-player game is you're not playing for points. You're playing just to earn the most money. So a lot of the point elements, a lot of the pieces of the game, you're not even really using anymore. Um, but it still works, and it's very difficult to achieve the high-end victories. And what's really been great is the computer version that somebody did on BoardGameGeek, and you can download it and play it. And it's I've played hundreds of games on it, and it's fun. I, I, and it's really nice to see, you know, because you think, man, after 100 plays, you, you know, is it is it going to hold up, you know, a game that I can play in five minutes, you know, as opposed to a game that I'm sitting down to play over 45 minutes on 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 board, uh, on a board game. So it's uh, it's been able to let me see that, uh, you know, the strategies really play out, and it has got a lot of luck, but as far as the single-player game, and that's what the computer version is, it's only the single-player game. Um, because you don't have another player on the, you know, on the board with you who's going around and potentially uh, stealing your performances or stealing the talent away that you might mm-hmm. hire or doing things like that, you have a little more control over what you're going to do. You know, it's a little more calculated. You can really look it over and say, oh no, my best move is this. Whereas in a two-player game, you don't know when the other player is going to sneak over and steal your performance. Okay, so it sounds like that solitaire game is uh, more puzzle-like. Yeah. Um, so, the, like I said before, the the game was inspired by Water for Elephants. Is the game a direct result of the book, or is it an idea you already had in your head? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, that's uh, that's something that I think about with a lot of the games that I work on and design. You know, am I a theme person or am I a mechanics person? And I'm always amazed at how many game designers actually come from a mechanic first, and and I don't. I mean, I usually come from a theme, you know, it's something that, you know, a movie I saw or a book I read or something that really inspires me and gets me kind of interested and motivated. I get excited about it. And then I start thinking in my head, you know, which mechanics go with it and can can be used to make it. And sometimes I can think of something and it works out and it's really cool. And sometimes I, I still struggle to think of, of how, how to make it work. But but, you know, really the game that inspired this one in terms of mechanics and what I was thinking of was the game Coliseum, which Days of Wonder publishes by mm-hmm. uh, Wolfgang Kramer. And and I love that game, and it's really fun, and it's 
but it's really it's an odd theme because it's Colosseum. It's set in Roman times, but it's really a special events coordinator, and uh, you know it's it's coordinating an event, and it could be set anywhere. It could be set in modern times. It could be set you know trying to to set up a concert or something or, or running a. Uh, uh, any sort of a show place. I mean, it's really kind of neat. You hire t- talent, you get the uh, the, the background scenes and, and uh, all the different pieces of your stage performance. You have to uh, purchase the rights to do the show and so on. I mean, it's really got a neat element. So I, I thought, you know, th- there's such a great game there and it's so much fun to play. And then when Water for Elephants came up, I thought, well, it's now just going to be kind of a, a moving coliseum. And it's going to move from place to place, and the performances are going to pop up. But it's the same concept that you're going to have the talent. You know, it's funny. One of the things I read in some of the reviews of people say, well, that um, uh, that it's a um, uh, pick up and deliver game. And I'd never thought of it as a pick up and deliver game, but now I I totally see where that that comes from. But that is not what it really was. It really was a, a moving, a traveling coliseum game. It was really trying to match talent with these performances that popped up in the different cities. Okay, that, that, you know I had to talk to my friend about it because he he told me it's a pickup and delivery game, but yeah, the way you describe it sounds really neat. So, I the, the game I saw was picked up by GMT and I have pre-ordered on the on their P500 list. How did that come about? Did you contact GMT or did they come to you? Victory Point Games has a really good relationship with GMT, and they've already published one game, maybe two, uh, on the on the uh, P500 list. So, um, so again, I don't know the names, but they, it, you know, Alan Emmerich at Victory Point Games knows people at GMT, and uh, they contacted Alan and said uh, they they wanted to do Circus Train, they really liked it, and um, so we kind of went from there. But I've not operated very closely with them at all. Uh, it's been mostly Victory Point Games directly with GMT. Oh, okay. I mean, I guess that, that makes it easier, too, since it's already a finished published game, too. There's not necessarily a lot they need to do. Are, are there any many differences between the two versions, GMT? Yeah, you know, you know, there actually are, and that is one of the things that I did get involved with right away. I mean, when it first went to the P500, they came to me and they said, you know, if you could do – well, they said, look over some of our other games uh, – and, you know, and so I looked at I looked at dominant species pretty heavily because I thought that's going to be the comparable type of game, and I looked at the components that they had in that game, and uh, and then what I could do for Circus Train, um, but they told me that to pretty much put you know everything that I wanted, and so you know my first thought was it's kind of neat because now I can make the game that I originally wanted when I first sat down and designed this game. On the other hand, the game has evolved a lot since then, and for the better. I mean, a lot of things that were in the game that weren't quite right, you know, I would be playing it and go, yeah, you know, but it, it's been through a whole testing cycle and everything. So the rules themselves are not going to change. It's the same game as far as the rules are concerned. But what is going to change are the components and the way you interact and interface with the game. So, you know, the game had player boards, and the player boards were where you kept track of your money and where you kept track of your best performance scores. Well, now that's going to all be kept track of on the main, I mean, you'll have money coins, so your money will be actual physical coins. You're not going to have to keep track by moving a little marker up and down the little balloons on the player boards. And then there'll be a score track around the outside of the board that's going to keep track of both your overall score and your best performance score. Again, that's kind of a Wolfgang Kramer kind of thing to do, you know, to have the Mm -hmm. two pieces. So uh, that's 
that's what it's going to be. So you, player boards are gone. You don't have to do that. You know, you're not going to have the two little, right now you have two little markers, one for tens and one for ones to keep track of your score on the board, and that won't be there. So it's going to make the game, you know, it's going to take some of the awkwardness that was in the game uh, and make it into uh, a really polished product. Wow, okay, neat. How complete is the game? Do you need to do any more work? Does the art still need to be made? That sort of thing? I believe, yeah. Again, you know, I'm. I, I after I delivered my set of components to them, I haven't been very involved. Mm-hmm. It, you know, obviously, I'm a little sad the fact that it's only at I think 4:29 or something, and I need to get to 500. I'm so close, but um, it's been about a year, so uh, you know, it's been a long time on the list. But I believe the way GMT works is that um, once it hits the 500, then they actually start um, putting all the production pieces together. And there won't be a lot of work to do, but they'll obviously need to upgrade the map or to, to build it up to the larger size. I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a larger size board. Um, and, uh, you know, so obviously the, the artwork will need to be expanded for the, the board, and they'll need to put the tracks around the outside, and then they'll need to be, you know, the rest of the pieces will just need to be worked out. But I don't think there's a lot of work. It shouldn't be anything okay. that, that's too difficult. Okay. You know, there's a couple of the games I've backed that I backed years ago and haven't hit 500 yet. So I think if you're at 499, I know, I right. know. <laughs> I know. I, I, I feel like I'm being greedy by asking that it gets done in a year, but it just, it was, you know, it's because it's, it's the first time, you know, and so I, I see it and it goes up to like 150 right away on the first day. And so I'm really excited. I'm like, wow, at this rate, it's going to be done in a couple months. And, you know, and yeah, I know that's just not the way it works. <laughs> but it, <laughs> I understand. It's just be nice to have that in your hands already. I know, I know. It's it's going to be great when it's that that full, you know, the big box and and uh, the nice board and everything. It's going to be really, really fun to see. So, so you've got another game on Victory Point, actually a series on VPG, the Disaster in the Himalayas, and these are mountain climbing games, which you control a team of a uh, of climber mountain climbers with a guide, and the goal is to get to the top of the mountain and back down. And there's three games in the series. They're all similar in that they share that basic theme, but they all play a little bit different. Did you start off the thinking you're going to make a series of it, or is it just a one-off game originally? The first one was Disaster and Everest, and I guess I should say they're, they're all based on mountains in the Himalayas, and you started off with the tallest mountain and have been working your way down. So was it originally a one-off deal in your mind? Yeah, originally it was, I, I never thought, I mean, again, you never know how things are going to work out, and um, I, I guess maybe in the back of my head, um, I, I mean, when I first designed Disaster and Everest in, you know, back in 04, and it was just the original idea, no, I was never, you know, I I come off reading Into Thin Air, and I'd always been interested in mountain climbing, and, and so I, it, it was just sort of a natural thing to do that game, and I never thought of doing any others. I suppose when I actually was getting it published then at Victory Point Games, um, you know, because I reduced it down again and I made it a solitaire game I always thought man it might be fun to do it in a, add a two player element back in um, because of the board size I knew it was never going to go back up to a four player game but I thought just adding that competitive element of, of a two player game might be kind of fun for it and um, so uh, so that's where K2 kind of came out of it I thought how clever you know K2 second highest mountain it has two in the title and it's a two player mm-hmm. game so it just kind of all flowed, and then and then there was the other K2 game that came out, and I thought, oh, no, they're going to think I'm copying them, and I'm like, no, not, not at all. <laughs> yeah, that, that's been a little confusing for me, too. At first, I thought they were the same game. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of too bad that those 
came out a big almost the same time. I actually think theirs came out a little ahead of my K2 one, but Everest came out before theirs. Okay. Um, but uh, they're different games, and they're a lot of fun. I've played that K2 game, and it's a really good game. Is it, have, have you had to play that one? It does look neat. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a diff- it's a very different game. Okay. So other than reading the, in the, the book Into Thin Air, how much more research did you have to do? Do you have any, like, mountain climbing experience yourself or anything like that? Um, no, I'm a pretty, uh, you know, yeah, those guys that did the other K2 game are real mountain climbers, which is pretty cool. Um, no, I don't have any experience with that, but I did a lot of research. I, you know, I don't, I I guess I've always been fascinated by high altitude climbing and, uh, you know, just, it's never been something I've been able to, you know, it's a lot of time and a lot of money to, to do something like that. But, uh, but I've always followed it and I've always watched it and, and, uh, and had an interest in it. And so, you know, there was the Everest movie that came out a while ago. I guess that was right after Into Thin Air and, and um, the IMAX movie. Mm-hmm. And um, um, and actually, the first book I read before Into Thin Air was The Seven Summits by Frank Wells and Dick Bass. And uh, it's about their adventures climbing each of the highest peaks uh, on each of the seven continents. And... Uh, and that book was really kind of fun, and then that led me to Into Thin Air. And I actually did a game based on their book, too, uh, which I haven't really been close to being published. But um, but the uh, Everest one was a much better fit. Okay. okay Although, you know, I felt kind of strange doing that one, too, um, because, you know, I thought, am, am I, you know, especially with uh, Krakauer's kind of feeling about the whole thing of tourists on the mountain, you know, and he had a lot of, uh, you know, tourists don't belong on the mountain kind of feel to it, which is a- absolutely something I wanted to get across in there. But I did feel a little strange. You know, I wondered if anybody was going to have a problem with the fact that I was, you know, making a game out of something that was a very, very serious tragedy. Um, and, and, you know, I was hoping that, no, I'm not trying to make light of it, not in any way. But um, but it was something I thought of when I was making it. I thought, you know, I wonder if somebody's going to come down on me. <laughs> you know, I, I'd never thought of it that way at all. But, you know, I guess if, if you start to think about it, somebody could say, oh, yeah, he's exploiting uh, that story and all this stuff. You know, then again, you know, you made the those, game tough. You'll see those threads on Board Game Geek, you know, where people just feel that, that uh, you know, war games are wrong, you know, because you're making light of, you know, people dying and so on. So it's a different different thought. But I I, I, I hope the message comes across well in, in Everest or Disaster on Everest that, you know, yeah, it's actually it's actually supporting what Krakauer was trying to write about it into thin air, I think. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's not an easy game. You're gonna people are gonna die if they try and climb Everest. That's yeah. that's what I got in other those games. So, have you found it challenging to come up with each game in the series, like after the first one, or just because it, it might feel redundant? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I wanted to do something different in each one. At some point, I always thought I'm gonna do a map pack and just put a board out and then just you know, with some generic rules and then let you go through and, and do that. But honestly, each of the mountains I've done so far has had some really interesting lore or background to it. Um, K2 was um, No Way Down, um, which was a book written about a, another tragedy that happened on K2. Um, and it had a little bit of a different feel to it. It's not the darkness that's coming, but it was an avalanche that actually covered part of the trail and made it difficult for them to to find a way down, and then, and then darkness came. Um, actually, Everest is a storm. <laughs> There's his darkness. And, and then with, you know, Kang Chinyunga, uh somebody had put me on to, actually it was Alan Emmerich at VPG, had put me on to uh, uh, the James Bond novel, um, 
High Time to Kill, which uh, takes place on Kangchenyunga, of all things. And I thought, well, gosh, how perfect is that? I mean, how many things ever are going to take place on that mountain? It's such an odd name. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I'd even debated that. I'm like, am I really going to do my third one on the third highest mountain? Because it's such, I mean, you know, Everest, K2, they're, they're easy to remember. They're known names. You know, Kangchenyunga, nobody knows that. So, uh, you know, and then the, the people were calling it Chimichanga and, you know, trying to come up with other names for it. But, um, but I, I decided to stick with it because I thought it was good and it's a good mountain and it's, it's, uh, separate from the others. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really good, but I don't know where it goes from here, but the next one would be Lhotse, which is the fourth highest mountain. And, uh, it's a sister peak to Everest. And, uh, actually what has been in the back of my head for that one, if I ever do it, will be to go completely fantasy on that one and put Yeti on the mountain. Cause I always get that people want to put it, you know, when, when is the Yeti going to appear? So I'm thinking maybe I'll have a tribe of Yeti living on Lhotse and, and, uh, let people do battle with the Yeti. Okay. That's, you know, I, I've thought about that. When are they going to be Yeti on? Because that sure sounds like it'd be fun. Everybody wants that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can't go wrong with them. <laughs> okay. So the next game I want to talk about is AD30, which hasn't been published yet, I don't think, by VPG, oh. but I saw that it was being playtested. Right. And this is a game, I don't remember much about it because I saw the, the posting briefly and it disappeared. But it, it's about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem? Right. So is, is this is this a game that's going to offend people with a strong Christian faith? Or, or do you think it's something they might enjoy? <laughs> well, I'm is sure it it's going to offend somebody. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm sure Everest offended somebody who, who doesn't think that that's, you know, a good thing to make a game about either. Um, I understand that. And, and, and you know, it's, it, it is a gamer's game in this sense. It's not a roll and move that's just going to go around and kind of systematically tell the story. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and, and therefore, as a game, it has to have alternate outcomes. And uh, some people aren't going to like that, you know. So, you know, there's actually 14 different outcomes that are possible in this game. But, you know, I think the important thing to note is that the only way to achieve the major victory in the game is if you actually follow the historical events. Uh, and if you don't, then you'll get something different. Okay, so it sounds like somebody, again, it depends on the individual really, but somebody that's a very religious might enjoy it because of that. First of all, my goal was it started off as just a personal uh, you know, personal journey and uh, it's something I wanted to do for myself. Uh, and it's it's actually been very humbling to discover how many people are very interested in this game. I guess I should should have expected that, but um, uh, of course now I have to deal with the weight of those expectations. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a gamer's game and uh, it's something that should follow along the story. Oh, I, you were talking about the, you know, somebody who's deep in their beliefs. Well, it's not going to be something that they're going to discover and, uh, and, and say, oh, that's new. Because obviously people who are familiar with the story, I'm not deeply diving into, uh, you, you know, the storyline and what the events are. I'm not even trying to interpret it. You know, I basically, uh, you know, use the Bible as, as the source, and then, and then I'm just pulling out parts of the Bible directly as written. And I'm not trying to say 
you know, I'm not trying to put the interpretation of what these events are or uh, put any meaning to them. I'm just basically saying what they are, and then it's up to the person. And if they know the story, then they'll they'll understand it and they'll go along. If they're not familiar, they can put their own personal beliefs into it, and that's great. Or they can go talk to their, you know, priest or pastor or whoever, and 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 find out. Uh, you know what these events are, the deeper meaning of these, and they can put it into their own religion and their own set of belief systems. So, and for people who are completely unfamiliar with it, well, you know, it'll either be just an interesting game for them, or it'll be something that'll inspire them to go and look into it and say, oh, this this is kind of interesting. What what is this? What does this mean? You know, who are the who are these characters? Who are these people? And uh, you know, and 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 learn a little bit more about it. So I think that's great, and I think that's what. You know, it's going to be, and it's it's obviously with any controversy, there's going to be good and bad. <laughs> the line that I've been using for everybody, uh, you know, about this is I say, you know, I enjoy and appreciate the fact that the controversy will bring new discussion and interest to the subject, while hopefully supplying an entertaining game as well. And that's been kind of my mantra for it. Okay, that sounds like a, a good safe spot to come from too. Um, so when is this expected to be released? Well. I just heard, I mean, again, Victory Point Games, they have a very tight schedule as far as, you know, they're trying to slot games in because they want to release games frequently, and um, they, they want to fast-track this. So um, the, the testing's going really well. Uh, we're feeling pretty confident of where it's at testing-wise now. So it's kind of going into the final production stages, and uh, it could be within a month. Okay, that's pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it only called for playtesters about a month ago. Yeah, and it went really fast. I mean, it's a game that plays fast, and uh, and we got obviously the the call went up and came down the same day, and uh, it, the, the the test kits went out, and uh, you know people have been playing it a lot since then. Okay, and um, you know, Victory Point is uh, upgrading the quality of all their components now. Is this going to be using their new quality? Do you know? Absolutely, it has all the new quality, everything, every part of it, and it's beautiful. I mean, this is the one thing that you know. Even some of the testers came back and talked about how great these the components were, and these weren't even final components for this game. Uh, wow. You know, we didn't do. I mean, these counters are so thick, and uh, I, you know, they use this they use a laser cutter now to cut out the pieces, and it's really kind of fun to watch. And, yeah, I saw a video of that. That was really neat. Oh, did you watch a video? Yeah. And it almost kind of flares up at times, and 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 then the, the pieces that you get have kind of this smoky smell to them. It's kind of fun to oh, smell wow. it, but. But these pieces that came out for 80-30 are, you know, thick, and they look almost wooden, you know, because of the color choices that uh, that Chris Taylor used when he put all together the pieces and everything for for me. Um, it's uh, they're just really really cool looking pieces. Oh, cool. Okay, I can't wait to see that. Um, how about the other games? Do you know if they're going to get updated anytime soon? I asked Victory Point Games, and they said they are planning on updating their old games, you know, as time permits. Yeah, I think they've hired a person whose sole responsibility is to uh, kind of backdate that. I mean, I don't really know the details. It's been a while since I've been down there and kind of watched them go through the whole production thing, but I'm not sure that they have a lot of those old machines even around. So they almost have to upgrade uh, everything to the new stuff. I mean, it's you know that's what they have there, and I mean, they, I'm sure they they must have the old stuff lying around somewhere, but I'm sure in their minds it's, easy, it's easier at this point to go forward. So, uh, mm-hmm. But it's just a matter of resizing some of the things because some of them are uh, had different sized uh, templates. And so there's probably some of that. And, and uh, I don't know. I mean, okay. one of the things nice about the laser cutter, as you probably saw in the videos, they can do different all different sized pieces now. I mean, there's... Yeah, I imagine uh, it's really easy to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, people are now coming up. So the designers are, are going wild now, coming up with neat ideas for different shape pieces. I bet, yeah, it doesn't have to be a square or a circle anymore, does it? Cool. No. Okay, so any any other games in the work right now? Any other solitaire games? I don't have any other solitaire games in the works. I mean, it's really uh, all my focus, as you can tell, because of the expedited date on this whole thing is uh, uh, is eighty thirty. I mean, most of my focus is on that. But they've also they're also pushing to to get Skagway out that you may have seen on there, which is kind of a worker placement town uh, game set in a um, Alaska. Oh, I missed that one. Gold Rush. You missed that one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's not a it's not a solitaire game. Uh, it'll be two to four players, but um, uh, it's in test right now, and and uh, uh, yeah, I'll send you a kid if you want one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, it's it's not solitaire, and it's trying to, uh, and they're trying to get that one out too. So I'm really focused on those two, and honestly, beyond that, I you know maybe there's the next disaster on Lotsa, you know that that I would do, um, and I like I said, I really haven't put a whole lot of thought. Uh, into where I'd go next. Okay. Okay. That sort of answers my next question. Do you have any any thoughts on making a state of siege game? Victory Points likes to do a lot of those. I'm I'm sorry. Say again. Uh, and Victory Points likes to make a lot of the state of siege games. I was wondering if you'd had any thoughts about doing something like that. It sounds like not right now. Yeah, you know, I, I in some ways, yeah, yeah, you know, the states of siege games are fantastic, and and in some ways, you'll see. Some of the elements of the states of siege game in eighty thirty, um, okay. but uh, they've got a whole they've got a whole kind of department doing the states of siege games and and uh, so those games come out constantly. It, it seems like there's so many opportunities for, for different themes that you could do with that that will all work and are all going to feel very different. It's amazing great. what that engine's capable of. Yeah, it really yeah, is. Really. I mean, you know, the 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 civil war game uh, Lost Cause is just it, it takes it in such a totally different direction than the other ones that I've seen. And uh, Zulu's on the Ramparts is, you know, again, a, a very different take on it. And Empires in America, I mean, they're all, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they take they take elements of, you know, the original Israeli independence game and then and then have really taken it in, in directions that uh, are pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, it's very impressive. So... Um... so so, so let me ask you some, a couple of general questions. Is, is it harder to make a multiplayer game or a solitaire game? Um, well, I think they both kind of have their challenges. Um, I guess I've been designing multiplayer games longer, so that comes a little more naturally for me. But, uh, but I've really enjoyed the challenges of making a solitaire game. Um, you have to put enough variety and randomness to keep it interesting while making it challenging enough so that players will want to come back and play it over and over again. And I think that's a real challenge with that. It's just, you know, how do you make a game that, you know, once you've played it, you know, once you've played it in one, why do I want to come back and play it again, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, I know that's something they do with the States of Siege games. You know, they, they try to put a certain difficulty factor on them so that once you've won, uh, you know, they're not that easy. I mean, if you win the first time, you know, that's not very much fun. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's with a those yeah, I, I think uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's um, I I think what's interesting to me about uh, you know, playing the solitaire games is that you know I like when I play them. I like the story. I like learning. A lot of them are very educational. I love the learning, um, and uh, um, and then 
playing them through and playing the storyline. And obviously, if I don't win, I'm you know challenged and I want to keep playing. And a lot of them, you know, a lot of them I will kind of feel like, oh, once I've I've won, you know, maybe I don't want to play again. Um, you know, I think having the levels of victory is really important um, mm-hmm. so that you don't just win and then it's like, okay, I'm done. Uh, you know, no, I want to achieve the best victory, which, uh, you know, something I'd put into all those disaster on games because uh, the, the, the the top victory level is really, really, really hard to achieve in those games. Yeah, um, those are really hard. I, I played, <laughs> I played them, and I don't think I've won yet. But every time, I, even if I finish and get close to winning, I'm satisfied that I've done so well. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, I'm glad. I mean, that's what I want. I mean, it, you know, getting the major victory. I mean, I, I think I even say it in the in you know the description of what happens. You know, it's like what more can be said. Books are written. You know, movies are made. You know, I mean, you know, that's kind of the the, the description I put in there because it's like, yeah. I mean, this is this is really 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 hard. You know, and I mean, you know, obviously, you know, uh, to make that kind of a swing in in things, there has to be a luck factor. I mean, you know, when I play Soviet Dawn, you know, there's there's a chart that you roll on, to, you know, that you can use one of your actions for, and you have to, have to get a six. And the actions are so valuable, and you're thinking, man, I only have a, a 16% chance, mm-hmm. you know, which is tiny, you know, and, and I have to waste a whole action on that, you know. And, and uh, you know, but if you're rolling the sixes, you know, you go, yeah, I got a six, I got a six, and then they, you get a big advantage for doing that. And so, um you know, there has to be a luck element into it, and certainly to achieve the, the top-level victory in Everest, uh, you, you're, you know, the cards are going to have to, you know, or not the cards, but the the, the, the events that you pull are going to have to be, uh, you know, pretty good ones. Mm-hmm. Just the right event at the right time. Yeah. Um, so a lot of your games have been uh, based on books, so what are you reading now? Well, I read a lot of fantasy, and right now I'm actually reading the Patrick Rothfuss series, The Name of the Wind. And uh, I'm on the second book now. Um, probably not going to be a game out of that. Okay. But uh, but I read a lot of adventure stories, and I did I did recently read The Lost City of Z. So in the back of my head, I've been thinking I need to do an Amazon game um, and exploring in in the Amazon jungle, which is fascinating to me. And I uh, have considered a lot of different things and a lot of different ways to put that together. Um, and, that sounds neat. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. <laughs> I haven't, like I said, I haven't come up with that perfect mechanic for it now. I've got the theme. Now I have to come up with what the mechanic is going to be. And I kind of was playing around with the concept, and I, I'm, I'm probably, I don't know if I'm going to go with this or not, but I was thinking there haven't been a lot of two-player cooperative games. There's a lot of multiplayer cooperative games, and I know some of them, like, you can play with two players, but this would be exclusively a two-player cooperative game. So, you know, players that husband and wives can play, things like that. And and I, I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be neat if I could come up with a system that would be a really cool cooperative two-player game? So my thought would be that, you know, one of them would be, and, man, it's been a little while since I've read it. I can't remember his name. But, you know, one would be the initial explorer in there, and then the other one would be, it would be a Stanley and Livingston, you know. One's oh, okay. the initial guy, and then the other one's coming in to try to find the other one. And, um, you know, yeah, it actually could be could be set in Africa, too, you know. And, and uh, uh, anyway, I, that was kind of my concept that I was playing with in my head, but I, I haven't gone very far with okay, it. Okay, that sounds like a neat idea. Okay, well, I'll take up a lot of your time, so I'm going to go ahead and let you go. And uh, th- thanks for talking. Is there anything yeah. else you'd like to say before? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I <laughs> okay. hope everybody enjoys my games, and, and uh, I'm glad I got the chance to talk to you. I uh, I can't remember the last thing I worked with you on, but 
Was it on Kangchenjunga, probably? Yes, I, I helped play test uh, Disaster in Kangchenjunga. Yeah, yeah. There's been a couple reviews written on that re recently, which is kind of fun. I, I just I just watched the Iger Sanction recently too, and and uh, it's it's a lot of fun to watch that movie after making that game. Oh, okay, I haven't seen that. Well, cool. You've never seen it, or you haven't seen it in a while. I, I've never. Oh, never seen it. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, a lot of people ask me about that when when they hear Kangchen Yunga. I mean, obviously there's a James Bond kind of feel to it, but uh, Iger Sanction is a, a Clint Eastwood movie and uh, from from way back, and it's climbing the Iger Mountain in in uh, Switzerland. And uh, yeah, it was really fun to watch that movie again because because uh, I hadn't seen it for many 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 years, and a lot of people were asking about it. And I'm like, yeah, it is it has similarities to it, but uh, I, I didn't realize. Hmm. How close it was. <laughs> okay, I'll have to check it out. Okay. Okay. Thanks again, Tom. Sure. Well, okay. thanks for calling. Okay, now we've learned a little bit more about a, a few other Victory Point games. Finally, going to go ahead and give into some detail about Nemo's War. This game was designed by Chris Taylor and published in 2009. This game simulates a story of, tw of uh, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. In the game, you're going to play the, the role of uh, Captain Nemo. He'll be journeying and adventuring around the oceans of the world. You know, most of the Victory Point games, at least the ones I've bought, come in a small bag. The, it's basically 8.5 by 5.5 size. Everything comes folded uh, like a standard size letter size paper folded in half. This one is much larger. It's an 8 and a half, 11 size paper, not folded. It's an envelope holding the board, which is actually 11 by 17, and it's got a six-page rule book and a bunch of counters and a bunch of cards and a couple charts. So as I said, this game is simulating the 20,000 leagues under the sea. It does that using, mainly I think, using a deck of cards. The the game has, I think, about 24 cards, and each card represents a part of the story. I think, if I remember right, there's 24 chapters in the book, and each card represents one chapter, or at least it's titled after the chapter, and then has flavor text talking about what happened. The board that you get is a map of the world, basically divided into a... It's basically divided into six oceans. Each ocean space is going to have... Space for four enemy ships, uh, one space for the Nautilus, and one space for a treasure you can find. The way the game works is actually pretty simple. The, the, the turn is really simple. The first phase is you roll two dice to, to, place the, to determine if you're going to place a sh enemy ships or a treasure. Um, if you roll doubles, you might play treasure. If you don't roll doubles, you're going to play ships. As I said, there's six oceans, so if you each number you roll is going to tell you which ocean to play the the ships in. If you roll the doubles, say a double three, then you're going to play the treasure in ocean number three. And then it's also going to that die roll is also going to tell you if you get to draw an event card. Basically, if you've drawn an event card the last turn, you get to draw an event card if you roll ten or higher. If you didn't draw an event card last turn, then you'll get an event card on a 7 or higher. And uh, once you've done that phase, the next phase is to take your actions. You've got about 5 or 6 different actions, which are basically fight the ships on the ocean you're at. Hi, dog. 
Uh, my dog's around here. Sorry about this. She's got a, a cone of Shane on her head. She uh, went to the dog ophthalmologist today. She's got a scratch in her cornea. Poor thing's miserable. Hi, Blitzen. The, um, so your, oceans, your choices for actions are attacking ships, uh, healing your crew, or fixing your hull, or upgrading your ship with, with some new components, or searching for treasure, or moving around. I think that's basically it. And then after you've taken your action, finally, you're going to advance a time, the time track. You're going to move a counter up one week on the board. Once you've reached the 52nd week, the game ends. And just keep repeating turns until the game ends either because time runs out or a couple of different ways the game can end. The uh, okay, the enemy ships I talked about, there's a f couple different kinds. There's basically uh, merchant ships, which... When you attack him, you just roll two dice, and if you get higher than the defense, you, you sink it, or you could choose to take it and salvage it. And then there's uh, military ships, which could actually attack you first, and if you survive that attack, you could then attack them back. And works the attack back works the same. If you roll above their defense value, you've sunk it. So combat's basically really simple. There are a couple different levels of ship as the game progresses, and you reach certain uh, weeks on the map, you're going to add new ships, which are basically going to be harder. It's going to contain more military ships, and they're going to be a little stronger than the ones you've been fighting so far. There's also a prestige track on the board. Every time you fight a ship and sink it, you're going to... It's not prestige. It's the opposite of prestige. Oh, I forgot what it's called. Anti-prestige, we'll call it. Um, every time you sink ships, you're going to... No notoriety, I'm sorry. You're going to get no notoriety for sinking ships, or if they get away, you're also going to get notoriety because now stories about your spreading. As your notoriety grows, again, we, you might add more ships, and definitely these will be more, more a lot more military ships than merchant ships. So as you're traveling the ocean, these ships are getting added to the board, and now it's going to be harder and harder to survive. So there's a couple of things about the game. You have One thing I really like is you've got a lot of choices. First of all, when you start the game, you're going to get to pick from your, your objective from four different ones. You could choose a military stance, you could search, choose science, uh, exploration, or anti-imperialism, I think, are the four choices. The one you choose is going to affect how you score victory points at the end of the game. If you choose to, to declare war against the world, you're going to get more victory points for sinking military ships, and you're not really going to get any for finding treasure. If you choose science, you're going to get more victory points for, for treasure and making discoveries, and you're going to get for sinking ships. So your objective choice is going to impact how you play the game and what sort of things you want to do. I should say there, aren't, there isn't anything that's going to be entirely useless in the game. If, even if you choose to go for an objective that doesn't give you victory points for finding treasure, some of the treasure that you find could give you other benefits and if you're trying to be a pacifist and not sink ships you're still going to have to sink ships in, even though you won't get victory points for it in part because if all the world's oceans fills up the game ends instantly and in part because some of those sunk ships you could salvage them and use that those salvage ships as upgrades for your for your nautilus so you're going to find that you know as you're playing you got you got to make some choices about what actions you want to take based on the objective you've picked. 
you've got the choice of where in the world you want to travel. You know, you're in uh, the Southern Pacific. You could choose to go to the Atlantic. You could choose to go to the Northern Pacific. So you're traveling around the world as you're playing the game. You know, that's kind of fun. Sometimes traveling is obvious. Sometimes it's just, you know, a whim of where you want to go in the world. You've also got choices with uh, what to do at your location. Are you going to fight ships? Is, are there too many ships there and you need to cut down the number of ships so that the game doesn't end? Or do you want to scout for treasure? Do you want to improve your hull or fix your ship? That sort of thing. And, and I find that as I'm playing, sometimes, you know, which of those I choose is a very tactical it becomes very tactical. And so you, you definitely feel like the, you're making right or wrong choices as you go along. Hopefully right ones. I love the theme of the game. I've always really enjoyed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Right when I got the game, I went ahead and uh, downloaded an audiobook about... Uh, I downloaded the, the audiobook of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and listened to that, and that was really great. I think I got that from uh, Gutenberg.org. I found that... It, as you're playing the game and you're drawing event cards, you're actually reading the event card and getting that flavor text out of it. The game tends to, for me, it was much more fun that way. I, I got a better sense of the story and it was just all around more enjoyable. When I ignored the uh, event cards, it, in a way, a lot of that theme was lost for me. So I, I recommend definitely doing that, reading, reading the event cards. And if you haven't read the book yet, read it or, or listen to the story. There is an expansion for this game. It adds some alternate endings, which I haven't played the expansion, so I can't really say, but I think are sort of based on the uh, the story itself, some of the possibilities that were hinted at during the story. And I believe it also adds some ship and some more advanced rules. So, so I really have enjoyed this game. It, it's fun. It lasts, I think, about an hour, hour and a half to play. I don't remember exactly. Um, the theme is great. It, it's been very well done, I think. The art is nice, and obviously a lot of thought was put into the game for the events and the flavoring, giving you a sense of the narration. Um, another thing I should say, as you're playing the game, you, the rules say to go ahead and shuffle the deck. You'll find that they also suggest that you know if you want to play and sort of follow the adventure of the Nautilus as it actually went in the, in the novel, play the cards in numeric order. And then it becomes more of a simulation than anything else. I haven't tried that yet, but it should work out pretty well. Because um, as I said, all the cards do have a lot of flavor text that's pretty decent. Or at least the title. I don't remember now for sure. I'd have to look at a card. I don't remember if it has that little text, a paragraph or anything like that, or if it's just a title of what happened. So if it is just a title, definitely reading the book would help. Would help add to that theme. I'll say I found the game pretty hard. I've played, I think, six or seven times. I haven't won yet. My score's been around 120 to 140, and I think you need at least 150 for a victory, a marginal victory. I think choosing the right objective might help. I get the feeling that some objectives are going to be easier than others, but I don't have enough experience to, to really say if that's true or not. This is an older game, so as of now, the, uh, the quality of the components is still the older, low-quality, standard Victory Point game components. I would think that this is one that will get upgraded uh, sooner rather than later. And also, somebody just just in the last week or so has been working on a redesign on BGG. with uh, the, They've made their own map and whatnot. 
And you should check it out. It's a pretty interesting looking map. For me, it didn't look that functional. The um, the nor notoriety track, for example, there's numbers along the board, but it doesn't look like there's little squares. So I know when I play games like that where there there aren't nice large size spaces, I tend to miss my counter slides around and I misplace it and I lose track of where I'm really at in the game. But it's it, really great looking uh, redesign. Alrighty, that's it for Nemo's War. Uh, hope you check it out. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we'll talk next time. I think I need to do another Victory Point Games episode because there's still a lot more about the... There's still a bunch more games I could talk about that I didn't even touch. But it may not be the next show. We'll see what happens. Alright, until next time. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you would like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at oneplayeralbert at gmail.com. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected by a Creative Commons license. The song and copyright information can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published in the Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Thanks for listening.